0: future fossils? That's you. You'll be a fossil one day. Welcome on board to the show that explores our place in time. Because if tomorrow is anything like yesterday, then we can be sure there are entire buildings full of passionate scholars pouring over all of the podcasts left by this moment in history, trying to make sense of what it was like to be alive right now. And I think it's probably for us to be on our best behaviors and make it look like we really gave a college effort at being good ancestors and didn't just fap off through the apocalypse, right? Well, luckily, we've got a fabulous guest this week playing for team here and now. This (laughs) is my buddy, Meow Ludo Disco Gamma Meow Meow. No, seriously. I met Meow at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia Innovation Lab back in February while I was giving a talk called Tech Ethics as Psychedelic Parenting. Amazingly, I was not kicked out of the bank, but was in fact able to facilitate a conversation that kept people in the bank building after 5 p.m. on a Friday. And one of those people who came across the street and drank pints with us until midnight was Meow, who is a most impressive friend. He was recently on Australian National News for implanting his Opal Transit card chip in his hand so he can just swipe his hand like Obi-Wan Kenobi to get onto the subway. Very cool, they thought not. They canceled his card under the terms of service, claiming he had damaged or modified his card. But joke was on them because he actually implanted a cash-loaded and anonymous card in his hand. So we have a lot to learn from Yao about how to live in the future. And I'm excited to uh, introduce him to all of you. He's a fascinating dude. He founded the uh, BioFoundry in Australia, which is a biohacking enterprise And it was the uh, platform upon which he recently ran for political office as a representative of the Science Party and got pretty close. So he also recently taught a seminar on how to invest in cryptocurrency. So our conversation today is the first on Future Fossils where we discuss the potential social and cultural implications of that financial singularity. And I look forward to that. But before we get started... I want to take a moment to thank three waves of people. Every single person listening to this podcast, you're amazing. I'm super glad that you're doing it. Thank you. Wave two, everyone who has subscribed to and or rated and reviewed this show on iTunes, Your ratings boosted this week. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And you're helping me get this show into the ears of more people who will enjoy it, which is super important. It's why I'm doing this. It's an act of service, of love, of dedication to what Charles Eisenstein calls the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. So thank you, doubly, and triple thanks to all of my Patreon supporters because about once a week, I go through this micro window of despair where I think I really, really ought to get a telemarketing job or work in an insurance company or you know, just sell my soul for a little bit so that I can keep devoting myself to this work without freaking out about my finances. I learned recently from an article on Reset.me that depression is most likely not a chemical issue, but rather the consequence of brain damage caused by chronic stress. So I'm up in my meditation schedule, folks. I'm going to make sure that I'm lucid, calm, and at the wheel for you. But if you want to make a small investment in the futures market and place your bet on the future version of me that's able to continue doing this full-time then please just drop on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield, where I just started serializing a spoken word science fiction story about the moment that artificial intelligence learns to forge everything beyond our ability to determine its veracity. I also just published three musical live recordings, two singer-songwriter-storyteller sets from Australia tour, as well as A studio duet with my friend Ashley Stone on Synthesizer. So if you're into the heady tunes, you can go cop a ton of those at patreon.com slash michaelgarfield for free. Okay. Friends, I love you. This is a two-part episode, so I'm going to leave this week on a cliffhanger for you in the middle of an argument, actually. So, so while you're waiting this week for the rest of this conversation, go back and listen to episode 34 with Tara Jokic, the scientist whose work on the origins of life we mentioned in this episode. And also check out episode 22 with Simon Eugler who I interviewed while I was on Australia tour. And in the show notes, I'll post a link to the talk I gave at Commonwealth Bank. So you can appreciate the climate of absurd high-technological shenanigans in which this friendship grew. All right, folks, here we go. Meow, meow, meow for your delight. Hey, dude, how you going?
1: <laughs> You're going well. Um, give me one second. I'm just going to close my browser. I've just been playing with cryptocurrencies for like the past three hours.
0: Oh, really?
1: Yeah man, I just (laughs) I bought into Ethereum at like 300 bucks And now it's like on mental So I'm like diversifying my portfolio a bit Yeah, 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 Uh, yeah, totally uh, Fuck man, I went through and checked The dates that I would have bought in I don't know why I did this to myself I went and checked the dates I would have bought in (laughs) To Bitcoin Uh huh But my account fucked up Uh huh, uh huh $1.40 man
0: oh my god yeah dude i i was i was like watching it from day one and do not know why i Mm. waited and then i got into it in 2014 and then sold all my shit last year oh fuck man was like "Eh, this is lame i don't i you know i was like i I need the money and i I didn't i didn't need all of it i didn't need to sell like (laughs) the seven that i had yeah and i was like yeah it's you know i've waited three years and it's not going anywhere and then i and then that decision in november i lost something like what like almost twenty thousand dollars fuck man i told my
1: friend to get in at like 15 bucks for ethereum she invested 460 bucks she's got 20 grand now
0: whoa (laughs) She wow. was like online. Oh
1: she's like, I've got five hundred bucks. What should I invest it in? And I'm like, buy Ethereum. And no one else gave her anything worthwhile. So she goes, fuck it, I'll do it. She was like, she's been messaging me. She bought a camper van. Has been traveling around <laughs> Australia, <laughs> and she's just like laughing. And I'm like, fuck, I didn't buy in. You owe me fucking dinner.
0: <laughs> dinner. That's fair. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. Um, but I was going to invest four hundred dollars in Bitcoin at at a dollar forty. But like literally. I see my emails. It's like your account didn't go through. Your account didn't go through. Fuck out. Matt Gox just got robbed, which is who I was going to buy it through. So I would have lost everything anyway, which would have been even, I think even like more bitter
0: if it had been stolen from me rather than incompetency. Right. Well, I have the one, I have the one Bitcoin that, because I was depositing cash into a Bitcoin ATM. Yeah. And (laughs) so I have one that for some reason I dicked it up. And it ended up on a different wallet address that the only place I had the private key was on the receipt. And I didn't realize it was so like I threw away the private key. So I have 1.14 Bitcoin that I can't get to. Oh, baby. And it's just sitting there. And in like two years, that shit could be like, you know, $20,000 or whatever. And I'm just going to be sitting there looking at it, like hoping that I don't care. That I've well, I've managed to capitalize on all of these other ICOs and you've you've made everyone else's Bitcoin worth just a little bit more so
1: you can take that beauty away with you. Also, man, I'm thinking like um, I might have told you before, Nicola and I are thinking about getting married by encoding our vows as a smart contract, or more importantly, like a decentralized autonomous organization.
0: <laughs> Go on, see this <laughs> is great just, because. I really wanted to talk with you about biohacking today, but yeah. I'm also reading Common as Air by Lewis Hyde, which is all about the history of IP. And I know you and I have yes. strong thoughts about intellectual property in the commons. And and yeah. also I think the issue of a blockchain wedding contract is like very timely right now. So yeah, so I want to yeah. hear about that. Well, I think the thing is um, like marriage as we
1: know it now, man, is like it's it's about property, right? It's about assets. We're not going to pretend like it's anything else because in, in Australia, at least, we have like civil unions, which basically give you the same things as a marriage. But it's it's not marriage, right? But I think that the problem is, is that why do we want marriage equality when we have legal institutions that give you the same things as a marriage? It's because of the name is not marriage right so people are like i want what they have the grasses you know i want what the joneses have you know (laughs) this bullshit but the thing is that i'm like well if that's what it's coming down to now why not just fucking scrap the whole thing and reinvent it and we thought about this because nicola and i are in a poly relationship so in a poly relationship obviously assets can't be divided according to a civil union so in Mm. that case well fuck you have to reinvent the whole thing so i'm like well fucking crypto is a good way of going about it. You know, with these things like DAOs, which allow us to like fucking um, put things in. Cause one of the big things that they were talking about for a long time was superannuation. So even if you're in a de facto relationship with, with, with a member of the same sex before this marriage, um, the civil unions and stuff came about, there were some kind of legal um, mechanisms to be able to divvy up super on, on death and stuff like that. But like when you're, when you're in a poly relationship, you have to fucking, do ad hoc or pro rata fucking super um, (laughs) measurements as time goes on. So like, what about if someone like say, for example, I'm in a relationship with Nicola for our entire lives, but someone joins for like two years and they fulfill functions in our relationship, which are like, they do some domestic duties. They fucking help us out around the house. But because of that, they suffer work, work related expenses how do we fucking divvy up the super to make sure? Sh- well, I don't have any super, but like, if I did, <laughs> how would we divvy it up so that everyone is treated fairly in the relationship?
0: It's funny though. Cause like marriage was not originally devised for treating people fairly. Oh, oh. <laughs> you know, and in its definitely. current implementations, it's definitely not, you know, I mean, I saw my parents yeah. split up and I don't think that that was fair to either party. My dad definitely did what he could to make sure my mom was like taken care of after they split yeah. up. But I mean, it was it's insane now. And like I've seen people in in our generation who split up and I guess this is a little off off topic, but it is it, de- it there awesome. are definitely sort of like de facto like the way that the court handles this and just says, okay, you're the man and you're the woman. So we're going to give you this and you that, you know? And it's just like, I think that's again, another instance that blockchain applications are wise to try and replace, you know? So at least you've got like, okay, look, this is very clear. It's putting, you know, and this can tie kind of into a number of different angles that you and I have discussed that the thing about decentralizing everything and putting the responsibility back on individuals to consent and like that, that agreement, like how insanely yeah. tricky it is to even have a poly relationship. Like, I, you know, I, mm. I can't even claim that like my relationship, we've definitely been talking about it for a decade Mm. But it's like when you get together in college, opening that kind of stuff up mm. is like changing the charter of your company or something yeah. it's like you know it's it's like it's like kicking out the CEO and replacing them with a with like a chimpanzee in a suit or something <laughs> like it just it
1: just well, it, i think about it like this you you kick out the ceo and you replace it with a board of directors but even that decision is a big one right because who's on the board what power do they have and the thing is like with with nick and my poly relationship like man it's been a rocky road getting to where we are but now we're like fucking so secure but also like when we bring on people, it's it's almost like a business relationship. You've learned from past mistakes, you know who you want on, how much power you want them to have, and how that gets vested over time. And the thing is that like I read an article that was about being like unabashedly poly from the get-go. So one of the one of the things that it said in this was like, if you're poly, don't go into a new relationship, pretending like that relationship is going to be like, I'm going to cut off all partners for a certain period of time and just enjoy this new relationship for a bit. Because what ends up happening is you say, like you said, you set up this thing, you set set the ground rules differently. And when you set the ground rules, differently, this this means that changing from those ground rules is a really big step. So they're like, when you meet, if you're in a relationship that's established, you tell them when they say to you, how many other partners do you have? You say a number even if you don't, because it just sets this expectation that that's the way that it will be in the future. And you say to them, well, they're private, or I'm going to let you in on some of them. But like I was in, I was in a relationship where it basically went trigonomous. So I, I was with Nick. I was with this other girl. This other girl wasn't seeing anyone else. I wasn't seeing anyone else outside those two. And then Nick could see whoever she wanted. But it was a bad foundation because it ended up, this girl wanted to get more and more mono over time and then basically when I tried to open things up with her it wasn't okay and then that started inhibiting my relationship with Nick to the point that I couldn't see other people by the are we recording this by the way is this interview styles have
0: we been, don't have to include anything in this that you well, no, dude, I just I just want to know because I
1: when I know I'm being recorded I present differently <laughs> ah yeah well sure whatever works for you because I like make sure to introduce the salient details and don't have any assumed prior knowledge and all that shit,
0: right, well, I think our only assumed prior knowledge of each other at this point is that we both hate the guy who patented vanta black oh yeah, man,
1: so did you see vanta vanta pink I think it was no
0: okay, let's get there yeah, hold there's... on let's <laughs> well, let's wait, I want to hear what you had to say about this this is... because I'm in this situation where like i don't actually. I'm pretty sure my parents aren't listening to this show, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like you know, let's just say that I'm in an unprecedented, and complicated situation in in love right now. So I'm listening to everything that you're saying with bated breath.
1: Yeah. Okay. We are going Vanta Pink? Is this what the road we're going down?
0: Let's. I mean, we can get to Van, we can get to Vanta Pink, but I'm so you're you're just saying establish things openly. Be be. Okay.
1: Yeah, so you know. to jam out a bit more. So so like with with the polyamorous thing, I think it's Nick and I were in a bit of a unique situation. So she was kinky and I was poly before we met. And then I became kinky and she became poly after we started seeing each other. Now, we were always sleeping with other people throughout our entire relationship. So I was in a poly relationship when I met Nick. That broke down. I stopped seeing both of them. Then Nick and I started seeing each other not long afterwards. But there was a, there was a gap like – I let that relationship die and Nick went off and did her own thing. And then we like independently came back and said, you know what? We actually fucking had something. Let's, let's kind of see how this goes on a, like having us as primary kind of things. Now Nick and I are primary and this is like a dirty word in the poly community because your relationships are supposed to be what they are. There's not supposed to be hierarchies because this denotes kind of like the idea is that if someone's a primary, they're worth more.
0: Yes. Yeah. So I've been reading more than 2 by uh yeah. Vo and Reichert or I think I don't know yeah. how you say. It. And you know they're they're definitely sort of they stand in critique of this. Yeah. yeah. That it's like Sorry. which which I think is, you know, it's like uh they're taking an ecological view of relationships, which I like, you know, they say like kind of the the whole idea is that you're free to allow whatever seeds blow into the garden to sprout there. But they they are Explicit about how there's a lot, there's
1: a lot of seed blowing everywhere by the way, <laughs> yes,
0: <laughs> I noticed that yeah that there's yeah i mean it's it it is a very uh you know for whatever reason plant sex doesn't gross people out as much, so it's good, but they they still sort of maintain that there's there's a certain amount of horticulture involved, and I think that i mean ultimately they they do make room for i think there's you know certain relationships are gonna have. Uh, priority if you give them priority you know
1: yeah and i i think the thing is that um my friend murray said this to me even so so the competing view to a hierarchical view of of um of poly. uh so there's primary and then the the, the opposing kind of the other view is this relationship anarchy which is that every relationship is what it is and there's there's that that they're not dependent on other relationships. So with a primary relationship, there's there's primaries or or anchor relationships is a nicer term because everyone's trying to get rid of these hierarchical terms for them. There's like anchor relationships and then there's like satellites or or things like this, and they they invent other terms which like says a you know, sale someone...
0: relationship. Yeah. It's like shit. <laughs> so who wants to be the who wants to be the anchor if someone else is the sales? But the at any entire... rate. Like, um, so,
1: so there's like all these terms, but if you think about it from a horticultural perspective, like even there, man, there's there's plants that are dominant, there's plants which are weeds, and there's plants that are shrubs, and like all these things, right? But the relationship anarchy is more like a mycological thing, right? So in mushrooms, have like indeterminate amounts of sexes; they just have compatible mating types, and they get into these huge networks. there's a very good way to describe this this relationship anarchy. So, so. Myco stuff, fungal stuff is much more like the relationship anarchy. If we're talking horticultural, man, you know, in the garden, there's always the corn and there's always the grass, right? There's there's natural hierarchies that establish themselves. And I think that in my relationship, this is a much more natural way of doing it, right? I don't want to do my fucking taxes and have my like casual sex buddy doing my laundry. So th- there's a natural hierarchy that establishes itself. And like, even if someone was a really important partner to them, important partner to me it would take a long time before i start bringing them into my finances and my boring duties because i want to have a different type of relationship with them and this is why i'm a fan of relationship hierarchy and people can fucking say all they want you know what because I of taxes most... yeah fuck man you know what <laughs> i have one of the most successful poly relationships i know of and that's because we have a hierarchy and like you know what it doesn't mean you mean less than me it's like you have a lot of fucking catch-up to do before I invite you to do all the boring shit you probably don't want to do in the first
0: place. Yeah, I guess if you look at it as as uh, what a, s- a certain person is privileged to suffer of yeah, you. Definitely. It's like that, that actually, it's not just privileges, folks. It's the shit work. Right
1: exactly right and the thing is that like you know what what you give is equal to what you gain and like this whole thing kind of comes down to the whole basis of how we form relationships and friendships in the first place like if we remove the poly label and just say how do we form friendships you know this is by sharing secrets and privileged information with privileged information is a better better way of saying it at the right times with the right people that's reciprocated that's the foundation of all friendship right All poly does is add sex into it. And like you have a best friend. You might have five best friends. If you fuck them, it's completely irrelevant if you're poly, right? It just changes the way that that goes. And then if you have a a partner, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a life partner, that's just a different type of the same relationship. So I, I... that's why I'm like, of course, hierarchies exist. They exist in every one of our relationships. Formalizing it doesn't detract away from it and it doesn't make anyone of less value.
0: Totally. Well, you know, I think it is something I see, you know, to, to introduce the sort of uh, integral developmental stuff into it because I find that useful to a point that we're kind of looking at a strata of perspectives in the cultural ecosystem here. And we've got Mm. the entrepreneurial, rational, modern actor, and then you get into post, this sort of postmodern network thinking, the mycelial Mm. relationship anarchy Mm. thing is like loosely equivalent to uh, Napster, like just like Mm. totally like balls out peer to peer file sharing. And then (laughs) there's the acknowledgement that the, even, you know, in a mature forest ecosystem you have the mycelia there you know kind yeah. of shuttling nutrients around but then you've also got you know an established canopy of old growth trees and then like you know ground cover and all this other stuff right. and that these natural uh, hierarchies emerge that there's an apex predator you know that's like there's very few of them because you only need a few yeah. in the ecosystem. And, you know, certain species are quote-unquote keystone species and all this stuff is real. And the fact that there are fewer orcas than there are salmon is not some sort of patriarchal, phallocentric uh, imposition of our control urge onto the the natural order. Like as soon as you're like, oh, the natural order is actually rather, you know, the I Heart Huckabee is like, what happens in a meadow at dusk is actually the natural order. It's the, Richard, right. you know, Richard Brodigan's uh, machines of loving grace. So in that space, it seems like, you know, my stance on should music be free has yeah. grown up at a long, <laughs> like I was, I was reading, you know, to like kind of dovetail this into intellectual property, because I have been thinking specifically about the kind of relationship between human intimacy and the management of intellectual property for yeah. a, about a decade. Like I wrote a, a paper that I was just re like re examining last week called transcending possessiveness in love and music. And, mm. you know, making the case that basically the exclusivity in a contract between an artist and a label is kind of like a, a, marriage contract at least the way that a 19th century marriage went where you know the the man is the provider and so the man is like the record label and the woman is you know the artist that signs to this label and then like you know gets tour funding and stuff and you know when you start to cut it down that line then you start to see all of these ways that we have imported our age of Cattle husbandry, yeah, you know, like exactly. like a statue of a bull made out of stone at the gates of your temple, kind of yeah. thinking into not only the way that we manage digital media, which seems like totally yeah. ludicrous, but also the way that we manage our expectations of one another in relationship, which is in some ways even more ludicrous.
1: So definitely. Uh-huh. Well, both the things, both the things are hangovers from the same event, right? As you were talking about cattle, cattle husbandry, right? This, this all began at the birth of civilization about 12,000 years ago. So this, this is like uh, Jared Diamond in Guns, Germs, and Steel, talks about like the whole of society sprung up because of our move from hunter-gatherer lifestyle to agrarian, sessile people who are farmers so so when we moved from from hunt, so hunter gatherers were traditionally egalitarian and their relationship styles reflected that like relationships were about two years which is about the time it takes um for a baby to be conceived born and start walking and at that point they didn't need ownership they didn't need the marriage unit anymore right so they went back and had had sex with other people and had babies with different different people of the same tribe and spread the diversity and things like this. So this big transition didn't actually happen until we started farming, because when we started farming, we wanted to stay in the same place. We wanted to, uh, we grew more than we could eat. And this is a huge thing. Cause when we grow more than we can eat, you start getting bureaucracy. When you start getting bureaucracy, you start getting uh, tracking of how much food you have and who's got what. All of a sudden, you don't have every single person doesn't have to be a hunter-gatherer. So you've moved in this position where some people can be bureaucrats. And so the first person is the chief. So the chief doesn't farm. The chief manages the tribe. Then you get soldiers to defend the food. And then you get infinite levels of bureaucracy as we move from hunter-gatherers into nation states. And when you first start farming, you have the concept of property when you can only own what you can carry, the concept of property is pretty much meaningless, right? And when you move into um, a sessile agrarian society, you start having babies quicker. You start owning things because you have a house. And these ideas carry through Like marriage pretty much, as far as I know, didn't exist before we moved into um, into farming. Then after that, you get, you know, we're seeing Napster is the progression of farming like that. That's That's it much as the ways marriage and everything else and it's all about assets property and those were concepts that didn't exist before farming so it's it's all the same thing we're just rehashing the same fucking evolutionary baggage over and over again but now we've been liberated man you know we have internet internet changed fucking everything well computers before that computers internet and then we're seeing all these emergences now. And this is the birth of the singularity. Like before these things, singularity couldn't happen. Now it can. And it's by moving away from these system, the,
0: the traditional systems into the new systems. I almost wonder if we're looking at this wrong. Because like I think about singularities, right? Like mm. verbal language, like syntax was a singularity. There's no way for you to imagine an oral storytelling culture as an orangutan you know like good luck then like written language is a singularity right like Mm -hmm. the the library of Alexandria is like the is like inside the black hole at the end of interstellar to somebody who's just been spending their whole lives you know completely illiterate and now yeah we're seeing I mean it's I I almost think (laughs) I'm polyamorous when it comes to singularities (laughs) if you will, (laughs) because I'm looking at it now and it's like blockchain looks like a singularity to me, the internet in a general stroke, you know, you can sort of argue is like a slow motion singularity. It's actually happening a lot faster than oral language emerging, you know, over the, that flash point invisible to the fossil record. It's like, this is, you know, this is like, the fossil history of humankind went from like nothing to, to like Wally, like the entire yeah. w- surface of the world covered in like used car parts and stuff. Definitely, like instantly.
1: So yeah, and there, there is there is another fossil record that exists. So in this, so so there's the fossil record we carry carry around with us inside our bodies. Obviously, like I'm a geneticist, right? So um, around. I think it was about a hundred thousand years ago. May may have been more. Was the evolution of Homo. So we're Homo sapiens. Now that was a fucking big one. So I, I did um, for my for my final essay in genetics. I looked at the genetic differences between humans and chimps. Okay. So like humans and basically there was a, there was a big split. We have humans. We have chimps. We have um, uh, oh, gorillas. gorillas. Stuff like yeah, and then in the in the hominid line there was this event that happened and it's remarkable. There was 17 separate gene changes that all happened in one generation. Now this blows my mind, right? And they were pretty much, they're called um, the human accelerated regions, HARs. And they're, they're all long non-coding RNAs. So they just give a bit of background. So, If you look at the genome of a mouse and you look at the genome of a human, they're pretty much the same with respect to genes. The difference is in the amount of junk DNA. And it's not junk. We know it regulates the expression of the genes. So we know about 80% of this junk is being expressed. And that means it has an effect. So a, a huge part of these were responsible for brain development. And basically what happened was, it was it's called a selective sweep. These changes happened, and anyone that didn't have this change was wiped out. And that was the birth of homo as we think about it. Now, we know this record exists because we can check our DNA and the DNA of other chimps. And we can we, we also, one more thing, is we know how genes change. So some mutations are more likely to happen than others. So we can look for unusual patterns, and we can also look for the things that would have changed naturally across time between us and our ancestors. So this is a really good way for us to investigate things that couldn't have been fossilized. You know, that, that record as, as we're looking at it, we have to look in, a, in, in another rubbish dump, and the rubbish dump is actually like an archive of information, which is what our DNA is. And it's been saved somewhere. In fact, it's been kept inside us, man. We can we can interpret it now. We can go back and fucking sequence ourselves and see how these things have changed, which
0: is fucking mind blowing. That is mind blowing. I mean, I'm just wondering about that in light of all of these recent fossil discoveries, like within the last few months, that put human beings much older. Like the, I think the we did recent fossil evidence it would be older than you said because. There's recent fossil evidence from Morocco that the genus Homo goes back like 300,000 years. And then yeah. we found some early humans in Europe, like way, yeah. way earlier than we thought. And human, yeah. and like way, way earlier in, in North America than we thought was going on. But at and any rate, another
1: one, uh, way older, which was um, Homo florensis. Floren- oh yeah. 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 Fl- was, Fl- was found to be like fucking around for ages. Like, 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 after, like, like, you know, we're talking like 10 to 15,000 years ago or some shit, like, like was alive really, really recently. Don't quote me on the fucking numbers, but like yeah. way, way later than we thought, you know, like maybe he's been living there for a lot longer and has been, ext- you know, maybe it was living around the same time as woolly mammoths. Who knows?
0: Oh, and that's, um, yeah, that, that whole thing, you know, that the, the mammoths were around after the pyramids, like mm. still for like a thousand years after the pyramids. That- One thing we forget is that the pyramids are really fucking old.
1: <laughs> like really old man, they're like 4000 BC or some shit you know what I mean like Cleopatra lived closer to us than she did the
0: building of the pyramids oh yeah you want to play that game okay so yeah, sorry, the, are we gonna yeah, yeah 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 so <clears throat> you know everyone thinks about like dinosaurs right mm-hmm. but the mm-hmm. age of dinosaurs was 160 million years which means yeah. the end of the like T-Rex is closer to us than T-Rex was to the first dinosaurs or even to Stegosaurus, like in the middle of the age of dinosaurs. And I was thinking about that. And then I was like, okay, all right. So from the Cambrian explosion, which was the moment where we get all the modern phyla, like the the evolution of the eye, and then suddenly everything explodes because the eye is a big deal and it creates all these new layers in the ecosystem. That's 540 million years ago. And sharks are 450 yeah. million years ago. And then we don't, we don't even really like climb out on land until like, you know, for like another 100, 150 million years after that. Yeah. It's like you can put the entire age of dinosaurs in between sharks and the first reptiles. Like yeah, and yeah. and like the difference, like the gap between the first eye and the first like legit fish, is yeah. bigger. I mean, it's just like we like we don't. You know, you look at this time; it's just insane oh, to me. Dude,
1: like I study I study microbes a lot, right? Okay, yeah. We're talking like man, they've been around for three point eight to four point one billion years. Like literally, this 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 is this is the really interesting thing: the Fermi paradox, right? if life is so common and so there's this like drive to create life, where the fuck is it? Because pretty much as soon as life could have formed on earth, it did like without a doubt, right? We, we have like evidence of fossils going back 3.8 on land. We have evidence of microbes on land, 3.5 billion, maybe a little bit more. This is like, this is so fucking long ago. Like earth was fucked you know this is talk, we're talking late late heavy bombardment period there's like asteroids coming down and shit all the time and what's crazier is that there is one ancestor to everything right you got last universal common ancestor that one microbe gave birth to all life but it hasn't happened again on earth that we can find which is expected if everything's out competing this newer form of life but also at the same time like the only thing that survived was from one place from what we know now which is fucking crazy but um you know microbes inhabited the earth for a really long time. Like up until 2.2 billion years, the atmosphere is carbon dioxide. So the great oxygenation event happened then. And then that transformed everything and paved the way for life later on. But like, fuck man, you know, Mike, it's not until I studied microbiology and I was two years in before I really grasped the power of microbes, these little fucking (laughs) factories just cycle nutrients and my entire, like most of my life trying to share molecular biology with people is getting people to understand the power of microbes, these little fucking factories that just cycle things continuously. Anyway, we'll wave fucking topic. No, 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 this is
0: great. Actually, I think we are exactly where we need to be because check this out. Yeah. I met you when I was on tour in Australia on the sort of on the good graces of my friend Bruce Damer, who actually, he's really interested in the origins of life research. He's going to be on the cover of Scientific American in August with with, uh, Dave Damer, his co-author about research that they were doing in Australia.
1: I think I know Bruce. Um, Was he doing some work out at the Pilbara location? yes. Yes, and he was doing his virtual worlds, man. Yeah, I fucking, I met him, man. Was he involved with fucking Doom or something?
0: Yeah, yeah, he's he's got uh, a a long and storied history with computing. <laughs> he's he's got the Digibarn, the Computer History Museum, and like, he he took me and my friends through there back in April when we were out for the Maps conference, and it's yeah. it's, it's it's fascinating to meet somebody. You know, it's it's an interesting phenomenon that it seems that people who are interested in microbiology and people who are interested in computers are often the same people, you know? And I think that yeah. that's, that kind of speaks to the future of computing, but I'll leave that there for now. Um, yeah. I want to say though, that like the interesting thing, see, like we, we've launched off on this tangent in the poly singularity deal. Yeah. And, and I think it's a great moment to wrap it back because what aren't we recapitulating with this singularity, if not the er ur-singularity, which is life, right? Life itself. And then life itself, according to the recent and best evidence, is something that for the first however long, it wasn't even one cell, actually. Like, they're finding that it was uh, the last universal common ancestor they're calling the progenote, which was this sort of biofilm made out of... Loosely associated i mean it was like individuality didn't really exist yeah. for the first yeah. couple hundred million years, and it's like the the origins of life are actually in a group it's like in a it's in a network of genetic plenum, like just you know identity fluid sort of doing its thing, and so it really resembles in a lot of ways uh the human story more specifically like the way that we we started like you were saying we started in these these sort of very fluid and unrestricted tribal affiliations before we started to fence it up and so this yeah. it's in a weird way it's like i'm looking at this and i'm thinking that decentralized web applications and polyamory are actually like an atavistic biomimicry adaptation. Like if we're looking, like we're looking at the origins of life and it's like, oh, well, the origins of life was a worker-owned cooperative, you know, yeah. <laughs> run by everyone. They were all, they were all sleeping with each other. So, so in genetics, we have this thing called the central dogma of genetics and it's, it's beautiful,
1: right? It says, and, and like, really, if you want, if you, the take home message from today, if you fucking want to learn anything about genetics, um, the central dogma is where it's at. So DNA gets turned into RNA, and RNA gets turned into proteins. Now, I was always like, you know, DNA and proteins, that's where it's at. The proteins are catal- catalytic. They are the ones that catalyze reactions. They're the ones that cycle nutrients. And DNA is the library. It's the one that contains all the information, what you need RNA for. We've actually found out that in the beginning, it was probably RNA. In fact, we're, we're pretty confident of this. And the reason for this is that RNA can be both the library and the catalyst. So it can fulfill both the functions. The things that turn RNA into protein is RNA. It's a ribonucleoprotein, but basically it's a catalytic piece of RNA that translates the genetic code into a functional organism, a functional protein, so or, or a structural protein. But basically it translates. So in the beginning, we think it was a big soup of RNA. It was just this giant fucking clusterfuck gangbang orgy of RNA. Um, now, there's, there's a lot of like different opinions as to how things kind of went about. We think it went RNA, then proteins, because RNA can form the translation um, protein. So it can turn the RNA into protein. And then we can have it go back and then turn the RNA back into DNA. In short, though, we think it was a big soup of RNA beforehand. Now, when you were talking about compartmentalization, was it life back then? When it was RNA... When it was just a giant RNA soup, was it life? And that's your question. You you can answer that one.
0: I'm I'm down to say yes. I mean, mean, you're talking about reproduction. You're talking about inheritance. You're talking about adaptation. Yeah. So why not?
1: Compartmentalization. So without compartmentalization, we don't classify things as life at the moment, right? So we don't have a classification for life. So NASA, I think we might have even had this conversation, NASA used to say any self replicating organism capable of Darwinian selection is life. And that was there, That when we, when we went on um, Viking to Mars, the Viking lander, that was our classification. And then all of a sudden people brought up, mainly probably science fiction writers brought up all these cases. What about if you have an immortal organism? A transcendental being God, right? If you're mm-hmm. God, it wouldn't classify as life because it doesn't evolve necessarily. It's mm-hmm. not capable of Darwinian replication as God. The way we think about it, it would have to like make another organism. Right? Well, I
0: mean, I guess that depends on, on how you would delimit that organism within a quantum phase space, for example. You know, because just because something doesn't die in the fourth dimension doesn't mean yeah. that it's not limited among the available possible realities in quantum and space. And I think, you know, that's that's where you get into this whole issue. Like, we're, we're getting into the, like, possible science of some esoteric shit here. I think that it's entirely possible that we do have this sort of, uh, you know, Rainer Maria Rilke's angels that serenely disdain to annihilate us, that these are, like, a valid electromagnetic phenomenon that due to their essential nature as superfluid and thus non-local entities that they're they're nonetheless constrained by certain laws that would that sort of fit the mythological portrait of of gods as immortal but limited in important ways and yeah. therefore therefore uh, characters, you know, but then that, but again, it's like, I th- yeah, there's like this whole it sort is. of gray we're, area, life and non-life. Yeah, we're, These we're, categories aren't really useful anymore. Maybe. Yeah, definitely.
1: Cause we're, we're going down, as you said, we're going to this like quantum surreal existential crisis. Right. But when we're talking about looking for life, that's the fucking realm we exist in, right? Do angels yeah. fuck? Do angels breed? Like, if they don't, <laughs> they're not capable of self-replicating Darwinian selection. So, so, like, we are in that space. And as an astrobiologist, we are in that space. Like, where do we set the fucking boundaries, right? We don't know. We, we have a sample size of one. Mm-hmm. So, we have to look at what life is on Earth and then extrapolate from that and then set barriers where they're meaningful. So, like, are crystals alive? is fire alive? These are two big questions that I wrangle with because those are things which guide me to say, okay, well, what is life? And how is that different to an RNA world and a post-RNA compartmentalized cellular world? Because that's definitely life. Before it, there's big question marks everywhere. We're not going to say it, it, well, it definitely has qualities we would attribute with life. Now, NASA's official definition has changed. The d- official definition from what I've understood is what
0: is life? We'll know it when we find it. There was a justice in the U.S. that ruled that famously for pornography that says, oh. <laughs> I, I'll know it when I see it. That was like back in yeah. the 90s. <laughs> I'll know it. I know it when I see it. So it's which, like, which oh.
1: Interesting. Yeah. It brings it it's very subjective, right? Because the thing is, we can say that things have lifelike quantity, qualities without being life, right? So fire has a, an energetic gradient. It self-replicates it can't adapt but it displays a lot of qualities we think of with life and crystals they have this like program they follow right and they self-replicate and they they adapt according to their situations to make different types of crystals so they kind of evolve according to their their things but like inherently we know that fire and crystals aren't alive the same way an animal is
0: but that same same way i think that's kind of critical like i think you know, yeah. maybe maybe what we're looking at is in the same way that you start with RNA, but then it the system gets complex enough that it requires that RNA fork off and create extra layers of proteins and DNA. And it RNA yeah. just becomes, you know, we're, we're seeing something like that going on again to like weave this back in. We're going to see that going on with national currencies aren't going away they're just relying on you know like within 5 or 10 years all these big comp these big countries are going to be using the ethereum protocols as the back yeah. end for their national currencies you know That's so right. in a similar way i would say that the future doesn't seem to just completely pave over stuff so much as it just weaves it into a bigger, more complex structure. And so we're not getting rid of, in this sort of deconstructionist sense, the notions of life and non-life. We're just embedding them in a far more complex and mysterious set of possibilities. That It's yeah, like we have all of these sort of hybrid categories and like intermediate categories. I think crystals deserve some amount of life-ness. Oh, you know,
1: I I agree wholeheartedly. And this this is why fire and crystals are hard to deal with, right? Is because they display so many qualities that are lifelike. And this is amazing. You know, it's, it's looking like if you, if you've ever held a perfect crystal, and you realize that every single atom in that entire thing is perfectly arranged, it's a magic experience. Every crystal and mineral you hold has some degree of this and perfect crystals have a high degree of this and that's what makes them more amazing. This is why I really enjoy synthetically created gemstones is because I don't call them synthetic, I call them perfect, right? Uh, And I, I don't think just because they were made by humans, they're any less magical or important than if they're formed... By natural processes, or natural in the way that geological processes create them. In now, a way, uh, they're this...
0: they're even more magical because if you know where else where else in the universe can we look and find zirconium that was like yeah. made by a machine? That's pretty rare and bizarre and awesome.
1: I actually agree. I, I prefer synthetic gemstones over natural ones. Um, but <laughs> also um, on on this same token, um, where the fuck was I going with that? Where were we going? Oh, oh like, life, little... life and
0: non-life.
1: Life and non-life. Oh, yes. Yeah. So when we're talking about this, um, these like, infinite permutations, the way that things change, like you've got currencies adapting, you've got governments. And I think as well, the big thing is companies are like governments, right? So we've got banks that are backing cryptocurrencies before you have governments signing on. And these, this basically makes banks as powerful as governments, like they'll that, that guide where it goes, you know, everyone has these different things. Like, you know, people change their mind in a day. A religion takes a thousand years to change its mind over things. But like you have different things leading the way at different parts in the hierarchy. Now, on this as well, what we're doing is not actually like anything special. We're just creating new ecosystems for these things to evolve into. So money's had an ecosystem for a long time. We create crypto networks and all of a sudden you have a new ecosystem for that money to funnel through and evolve. And the thing is, it's always going to preference the thing that evolves faster. People criticize cryptocurrencies because they're volatile. The reason that they're volatile is because they're evolving quicker. And that means cryptocurrencies will be the future of currency. So we see The reason banks see this as exciting is because there's a lot more risk taking, there's a lot more chance, there's a lot more luck, and all these things are permutating to create more perfect systems. So they're just opening up the ecosystem. The internet is another ecosystem. So when we're talking about singularities, they are singularities in a sense that they're opening up new ecosystems to evolve into so like when life moved to land that was a singularity where there was a new ecosystem that opened up up until then it was the only thing the great oxygenation event was an ecosystem that changed the whole ecosystem that everything evolved into except the things that were at the bottom of the ocean that can stay ancient forever and that's mm. where the fucking governments are going, and that's where the banks are going, and that's where people <laughs> who fucking sign contracts that say you can't fucking release your music on any other label are going. Dude, it's interesting. Exist, it's interesting though.
0: that you say that because you know exploring this archetypally. So the, you know, the, I talk about the Great Oxygenation Event a lot actually because mm. it is. <clears throat> I, may, I may have actually talked about it when when you heard me speak at Earth Frequency because I was looking at like punctuation marks in life history and that one in particular i think we're we're sort of reproducing it now in some important respects like photosynthesis pollutes the atmosphere with oxygen which is poisonous at the time to everything and so we get a split we get the bifurcation of the anaerobic microbes that like you're saying decide that they're going to stay underground and at the bottom of the the sea and then you get the organisms that adapt to the polluted atmosphere and end up forming the glycolytic metabolism, which is like all animals and fungi. So, yeah. and then, then you have a new loop formed yeah. between the photosynthesis and glycolysis. And these two metabolisms end up sort of stabilizing the atmosphere of the earth and creating this whole new context for things. We're seeing something like that going on now with, I think, uh, like in general, I'll just say plastics, but let's say like industrial waste and byproducts of industrial manufacture. And then there's there's like we're right at that crisis point where it's becoming economically valid and, and interesting to talk about Setting up like an AI harvester drone that just scrapes trash out of the sea, mm. and instead of mining for it, that we've mined all this stuff already, and it's sitting in a landfill or it's sitting in the ocean, and so yeah. the reclamation of this, which was technically impossible until we got to the point where we could actually sort it, but like again, to talk, you know, Bruce Damer when he was on Duncan Trussell, his the the Family Hour podcast he was talking about how we won't go to ast- to asteroids to mine asteroids for rare earth minerals because we have mm-hmm. so many of them sitting in landfills already. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's so much more cost effective to just send a robot into a landfill to, to mine mm-hmm. all of your e-waste out of that, you know, and pick up all the, you know, the, like palladium and stuff out of used catalytic yeah. converters than it is to like send, send that robot into space to mine it. There's two
1: things going on there. Yeah. So when we go to space and we mine asteroids, it's not to bring it back to Earth. We're, we're mining asteroids to set up space factories, right? And, and that, that's where the real value in it will be. It's that you send a rocket off Earth, but you never bring it back down. So you escape the gravity well. So that, that that's my like, um, my. You mean you never you never
0: cash out your Bitcoin into dollars? It's just Bitcoin fucking now.
1: Amen. <laughs> amen. It's the long term things, the long term investments. Now, also back on Earth, you're right. We 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 will mine rubbish dumps, and we will mine the the plastic dump in the ocean. But the 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 way we'll mine it, I think, will be about like getting onto 2030. That's gonna be a big fucking. We're talking about milestones and punctuation, right? As we accelerate, the punctuation becomes quicker and quicker. It's like every by twenty thirty, every single fucking letter will be punctuated in a sentence, right? There's just so much change happening so quickly because we're we're the rate at which we're advancing is advancing. Mm. So we're like accelerating, not just linearly progressing towards something. Now, when we do this, once we get replicators, we'll probably also have like in, before replicators, we'll have molecular deconstructors that will will sort these atoms into the things they want. The benefit of rubbish dumps and plastic chips and stuff is that the, the, the materials and the atoms are highly sorted. So if we put a reasonably pure, bit of palladium in, we'll get a reasonable bit of a collection of palladium ions or atoms come out the other end. And that that's where the benefit comes. But like, once we get like, you know, these molecular deconstructors, you'll just feed rubbish dumps into them. And they'll just pull out in a collection of the periodic table. Um, and, and this works going on pretty heavily now. There's in fact, if any of your listeners want to make a lot of money, like get into molecular sorting, it's like, a, mark my words in 20 years time, you'll thank me. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, so on, on earth, we're going to be molecularly sorting heaps, but the the big problem is that all the heavy elements on earth, the vast majority have sunk to the core. So this is why, even though we have a shit ton of some stuff, it's all in context. Like, what are we building? Are we building like fucking, you know, are we turning all the earth material that we have access to into computers? Because if it does, we can we're gonna need asteroids, or we're gonna need some fucking hectic technology that can like program using silica and uh, silicon and. Uh, nickel and iron these lighter elements that are at the top all the heavy earth ones you know when the earth was a molten ball of steel they're heavier so they sunk to the center that's where all of the uranium and all that cool shit is um so i think it's like as as we have fuck man uranium is the best like we're just gonna be like talking you know we got lots of thorium around man but like i'm a big fan of fission that's where it's at
0: (laughs) Well, oh, man, as a a resident of the North American continent, I have to disagree with you because, Mm. you know, I'm sitting on this insane powder keg where we have two enormous super volcanoes, the Yellowstone. And then I forget what's right next to the Yellowstone, but there's another one that's like comparably maybe even bigger. And then we have I don't even know how many hundreds of nuclear reactors all over the continent that are just ready to geyser nuclear waste as soon as those volcanoes go off like the yeah. whole earth like this i i, I ran into this uh, right before i was like on the road to the maps conference and i stopped in in albuquerque and this little old lady in the grocery store in albuquerque stopped mm-hmm. me i don't know do i am i wearing a sign or something that says i need you to like grab me by the lapels and tell me how we need to deactivate all of the, n- the nuclear reactors in North America before Yellowstone explodes. Because oh, wow. Because it veered into the kook a little bit because she was saying, you know, the real reason that we're not going to Mars is that it's too radioactive. And that she thought that, you know, if you look at, you know, the hemisphere of Mars that's excavated and glassed and that some people think yeah. is due to an enormous lightning storm, she was like all that shit's radioactive that's like evidence of a nuclear war which like I draw the line I'm not yeah I'm not going there but but I did find what she had to say about you know like basically we're going to ruin the entire northern hemisphere if yeah. we don't get ourselves out of nuclear energy and it's like well I how do I argue with that? Except to say, don't worry, Yellowstone's Yellowstone's not going to blow in, in, in the next thousand years. It's like, I don't know. It's...
1: I can tell you how to argue with that. Okay. Straight up. Okay. Fuck, global warming will kill us in a hundred years, man. And how, how much carbon dioxide do nuclear – do we want to go down this path? Because, like, man, I can argue for literally hours. I, I had an, I'll warn you now. I had an argument with my dad okay. that lasted, I'm not kidding, four days. So wake up, start arguing. He got, he got high, smoking he's a weed. I got, he's drunk. We continued arguing, arguing until we passed out. We woke up four <laughs> days, man, four days. I wish that my dad doing. had
0: the stamina for that. I, I, he's, he's a, he's a non-conflict kind of a guy. I only get to argue him with him when we're stuck in the car together, which is rarely because he flies, <sighs> oh.
1: My my dad and I have this download where we just sit down and we both just speak at the same times and and absorb everything the other one has done since we last (laughs) saw each other. So we need like maximum three months between visits just so that we can download. Now, my dad grew up (laughs) during the Cold War, right? So he's like fucking scared of nukes, man. But like, I didn't. And I was always like, I like to take the other opinion, but not without being educated. So I'm like, you know what? If something's demonized enough, maybe i should listen to their side of the story because maybe there's more to it than that right okay And like you know hitler's the obvious one right you're like well
0: no one can be that evil well it turns out with hitler he actually was that evil but like you know um, but he had a micro penis and you know like i can understand being that angry
1: yeah and you know what like he got kicked out of art school like fuck that you know what happens when you get kicked out of art school (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you fucking take over Europe. Um, well, some people do. He's got ambition, at least, right? So, but the thing is that you know he was a vegetarian. He lo- he launched the world's first anti-smoking campaign, but he was still a pretty evil dude. But uh, you know everything he thought he was doing was right. And I thought that was the lesson I took away from that, even though he was definitely an evil dude, right? With well, that's the power, thing about right?
0: that's the thing about the Nuremberg trials is that the, that's that's where we encounter the banality of evil. It's like yeah. all of us all of us make the, these awkward decisions that we have to make. We have to validate the decision on the basis of, I've gotta be doing the right thing. Like wherever yeah. your scope, wherever, wherever your ability to like hold open that vulnerable heart of you yeah. is and that's like where that stops Definitely. where you're like i'm taking the i'm taking care of my family yeah but you're fucking up this ecosystem yeah. farmer guy yeah you know yeah like, okay you know it's yeah. easy to sympathize
1: it's it's interesting as well because if you speak to just take a hundred people over half of them will tell you we need some form of population control hitler so just kill those people right. i'm sorry now. <laughs> <laughs> So, so like, the thing is that, that, like, you know, the ideas that he's putting forward aren't that different than what the majority of the population believe. It's how he did it and and what his fucking criteria were for being the people that survive and the people that die or the people that don't breed. You know, a lot of his – a lot of the Jewish people were sterilized and not ex- executed, which is – like, both those things are terrifying. But and like, re-
0: honestly, how, how different is that from them – finding out with internal corporate research that cell phones give you cancer and then still encouraging you to put it in your pocket. Like I do. I I know a guy who had his testicles removed because he got testicular cancer from always keeping his cell phone in his pocket. And he's like, if, you know, we started this with a Bitcoin conversation being like, if only I had bought, he's like, if only I had just switched pockets every once in a while. That's it. Save your sperm people. But, you know, a
1: lot of these barriers get removed with genetics. You know, we can, we can, we can take certain cells from your body and, and we can clone that at the very least. But, you know, we're doing things now where we have like, you know, babies born with three parents genetically. Yeah. Where we take the mitochondria out. So, so there's, there's like what I think about a lot is like IVF, right? Like I'm, I'm from a genetics perspective against IVF. Why? because we're allowing people that shouldn't breed to be able to breed but from a life extension perspective i'm not against ivf because if people have waited until they're too old to have babies and then they have babies then all of a sudden we get people that live longer because we're selecting for older parents which means we know this in fruit fly experiments and that extends life so i've got like with, with all these things, I have all these conflicting views. Back to nuclear power, though, man. Yeah. If you shut, if like fucking, if you shut down a nuclear power plant, what do you replace it with?
0: Solar. No. Why not? Because fucking shit. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's solar's on the it's, same curve. It's it's getting better every year. It's getting cheaper. You know that the I'm really yeah. impressed with the the Tesla roofing tiles, the solar roofing. I mean. You know, let me paint my electric RV, my amphibious electric RV in solar panels, please. Yeah. You know, solar paint. The
1: problem is, um, it comes down to how much power do you get? Yeah. With solar, nothing, baby. Nothing. Like...
0: Then again, uh, if plants... Well, photosynthesis is like, what, 10% efficient? Something like that? And so you know, that took over the surface of the planet. Like, there's no reason why you're looking at it, it being a bottom up approach to energy production, yeah. paint everything, you know, your clothes have solar fibers in them. So that's done. And then like, you know, that, so your, your shirt is charging your phone, yeah. you know, yeah.
1: solved. What I'm saying is, is that you can, you can paint everything, but by the time we paint everything, it's too late. So at the moment, I see it as a battle against global warming and in the battle against global warming, we need big power sources to displace coal and solar won't do it.
0: But at yeah. the same time, I'm not opposed to nukes at like reactors as in the same way that like, I think I told you about how I, I, I was at this festival and this woman just categorically rejected genetically modified organisms said, yeah. give me one example where it's helped. as I was like, no, look, there's like this, 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 and this. Didn't want to hear it. You know me well enough to know that I'm not categorically rejecting any technology. You know, like oh, any, yeah, yeah. even the most and, gruesome uh, weapon can be used for art under the right circumstances.
1: Technologies are double use technologies, right? They, they can be used for good or they can be used for evil. And but, but can be used but for evil.
0: The, the reactors that we have now are almost entirely in areas that are seismologically at risk. We're looking at swapping out one short-term thinking mistake for another. You know, well, I, I mean think, that's that's I basically where I see this.
1: It's it's about how we deal with imminent threat, right? So building nuclear reactors in the short term may curb global warming and we can use the power generated from those to make more sustainable forms of power the thing is like nuclear power produces so much energy like it's unfathomable to think how much power it generates from so little matter with so little waste and nuclear meltdowns we can talk about them quickly so It's not a failure of the nuclear power that was built in a seismologically active area. That's a problem with the design, not the technology itself. So building a nuclear reactor in Japan is not a great idea because you're sitting on the the circle of fire or whatever they fucking call it. Like, you know, you're sitting on a fucking transverse fault. Australia, well, obviously I'm fucking biased, man. I'm from Australia for anyone that wants to. You
0: guys are rich in uranium. It's true. Hugely
1: rich in uranium. Tectonically stable. Like, Do you know why fucking Bruce Damer and Tara study in Australia?
0: Because Australia has money due to its uranium deposits? No, it doesn't. That all goes to private
1: organizations. Oh, I give up. Because we have rocks. We have some of the oldest rocks in the world because we're tectonically stable. We haven't moved, man, basically since Earth has been here we have stayed in this fucking same spot. We haven't been subducted. We haven't done all this shit. We've just sat here, right? We've got trees that were around since Gondwana land that are like still fucking there exactly as they were. Like I, I fucking, I had the the joy of going to Lamington national park, which is, um, on the East coast of Australia, about two thirds of the way up. And I saw trees as they were when the dinosaurs were there, man, like, like the same fucking forest. Right. So, so like, if we're going to pick a fucking stable area of the world to build radioactive power plants, we do it in Australia. Now this is why I'm like down for nuclear power in Australia. We have tons of uranium. We ha- we're technically stable. It makes sense here. It doesn't make sense everywhere. You know, like in, in, if you're an Iceland man, use geothermal power. Like that makes heaps of sense. But, um, until fusion comes along, like proper tokamak reactors being rolled out all around the world, we need to displace coal. And solar can't fucking cut it. Solar is in a very, very important technology. The problem is, like, I've been to the biggest solar power plants in Australia. They were like three football fields wide, right? The size of three football fields, and they powered 4,500 homes. And that's in a city that has 400,000 people. The amount of energy you expend to build the solar panels, to mine the materials, if you spend the same amount building a nuclear reactor... In the next 200 years, by building a nuclear reactor, you actually curb the amount of carbon that's produced because nuclear reactors produce no carbon except in the mining and the building of them. So, 15% of the world's power right now in Germany, America mainly, is produced by nuclear power. And all those countries like Portugal and shit that fucking claim, oh, hey, you know, we have fucking 100% renewable energy they did this because they did it in spring and then when they need the power during winter, they can rely upon Germany's nuclear reactors. So, so it's still, Busted. yeah, man, <laughs> fuck. Like, you know, these countries rely upon the grid and we'll, like, we'll talk about the grid just briefly, right? Yeah. The grid, the grid has to be stable. So you, Electricity moves in waves, right? It's it's you know Tesla was saying if you want the answers to the universe, you look for frequency modulation and and and, and uh, wavelength or something along these lines. He's saying look yeah. look to waves. Our whole power generation basically happens on the back of waves. So say for example you've got USA, and I bring a reactor on. It doesn't matter. Let's say let's say it's a nuclear reactor. Basically it it sends out power in waves, and the waves have to match what's on the grid. Now, either the, the reactor is powerful enough that it matches the grid or the grid pulls the nuclear reactor into phase. Like literally the mag the magnets that are spinning align with the grid. When you think about energy on this scale, it just fucking blows your mind, man, to think about how much power is on that racing through those wires, through those substations.
0: Right, right, right. Okay, but let's, let's talk about the grid again because in the U.S., yeah. we've got three of them. There's East okay, Coast, yeah. West Coast, and Texas. So yeah. like talk about existential risk. Even yeah. if Kim Jong-un talks about nuking Austin, I would still yeah. say Texas is a relatively good bet, especially we have no income yeah. tax here. So, yeah. okay, okay. Uh, at any rate, the thing about the grid, and I've this is sort of one of the first major issues that I felt like I had to you know, go chicken little and run around and, and tell everybody is that, The grid that we have is a legacy grid. And again, this is one of these issues where it's like we're not implementing any of these technologies in ideal situations, right? The legacy grid, by which I mean all three of these, as well as the grids in in Europe and Asia, they're all, by and large, decades old. They're not built with an understanding of the dynamism of our magnetic environment, either on you know, on earth or the magnetic activity of the sun, which, you know, because we only launched the solar dynamic observatory a few years ago, we really only recently began to understand that there's a magnetic umbilical cord between the earth and the sun Mm -hmm. and that the earth is subject to all of these largely unpredictable fluctuations. Yeah. And so there was a good reason for people to be concerned that uh, solar cycle 24 in 2012 That, you know, all of these like, you know, reputable folks were walking around beating on doors saying we need to install as many gaps and grounds and surge protectors in this system as we possibly can, because it wasn't built to handle a surge of the kind that we saw in 1859 with the solar flare that caused the Carrington event and knocked yeah. out all the telegraph wires everywhere. And, you know, people were reading their newspapers by Aurora light in Florida. And it's just like, our, our situation is so delicate right now. And I yeah. guess this is sort of like, this is the thing that we can zoom out a little bit and agree on this and agree on looping it back to the stability of, or rather the anti-fragility of a decentralized network the reason the solar is so appealing is because it doesn't have a single point of failure like yeah. a nuclear reactor does where if you have a solar flare that knocks out our electrical grid for three days you've just you've like destroyed civilization
1: definitely so so the, the big problem here is that the grid isn't set up to receive solar as you've said right so basically if you add all okay the grid is a centralized grid in america in australia all the way across the world we have centralized grids so the problem is you need to upgrade the grid if you want to add mass solar onto it. So that's why I'm saying in the short term, it's better to get rid of coal, replace it with nuclear, update the grid to be a smart grid, then put all your renewables on. Like This, this is the better way of doing it because if right now, Australia is limiting people putting solar onto the grid because it's destabilizing the grid because you have all these different phases of electricity competing with each other and it destabilizes the grid and then you get yeah. blackouts patchy blackouts all across the place, you have the possibility of destroying the entire grid. So you can replace coal and you can sell it to the coal. Like I'm, I'm, I'm pragmatic, right? I'm like, okay, you can sell it to the mining industries that you can replace coal with solar. Then we've knocked out carbon dioxide as a problem. Then we can think of the next thing. Capitalism lends itself to models that are in crisis continuously. Right. So you can, you can drive global warming down And us towards a more sustainable future by having nuclear as a stopgap in the middle. And I agree. It's a fucking band-aid, right? It is a band-aid. But it's the band-aid which causes us not to all die. And that's that's the argument that basically sold me on nuclear, which is that it's the only thing powerful enough to replace baseline energy on the grid if you remove coal. And the big problem is baseline power. So it's basically what keeps the grid in phase. Until you get smart grids, you need baseline power. People will say it's a lie. People that say that are wrong. Basically, you need smart grids to be able to have solar on the grid.
0: So this, this is actually comparable in some respects. I'm trying to like find the Hail Mary mm. pass to weaving this all into one unified mm. thread. This is comparable to the question of how do we transcend the current financial system with mm. blockchain? You know, right. Or like how do we move out of like an ownership model? in art life and relationship to a license and permission access based model cliffhanger tune in next week for the rest of this conversation where we discuss the blackest black and the pinkest pink in the world and the role of the artist in an era beyond intellectual property Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network. Be sure to go to mindpodnetwork.com and check it out. And if you'd like to support this show, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks again.